that's okay. We have an interesting message today. I hope it's always interesting. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. The title of today's message is Two Masters. Two Masters. We're going to be jumping into Matthew chapter 6, and you're looking for verse 19. But before we jump into the text, this is Christ's Sermon on the Mount, I want to uh, maybe explain something that that, uh, needs to be mentioned before we read the text. For the believer, God's Holy Spirit indwells the believer. So as they read sacred scripture, they have the very author of it indwelling them and helping them to understand what is communicated. This is a little bit different than how non-believers read the text. A non-believer can look at the truth contained in the Bible and intellectually understand it. Where they fail, where they cannot grasp, is that the, they can't apply the truth to their life. They've rejected the Holy Spirit and the application isn't there and they don't act on the truth. So they can understand the text that we're going to look at, but they won't be able to apply and act on the truth contained. So we're going to look at some pretty obvious truths, and then the Holy Spirit is going to do His work in our life, those who believe, and apply it and enable us to understand it and act on what we learn. So we're jumping midway into Christ's Sermon on the Mount at verse 19, where he's explaining how we cannot have a divided loyalty. We are either going to serve God or we're going to serve earthly wealth. In verse 19, Christ says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is readily apparent to us, even in our context. We understand that earthly treasure is transitory. It's temporary. It doesn't last You can have $1,000 today, and it won't be worth $1,000 tomorrow. Inflation takes away uh, your wealth. Uh, Moths can destroy fabrics. Rust can destroy equipment. Thieves can steal. Wealth is transitory. It's not permanent. There is a permanent type of wealth. And that is relationship with God. Those who have devoted their life to serving God, they will gain the reward for that relationship in eternity. And he says in verse 21, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. We can understand what is important to us by what we 
devote our life to, what we think about, what we fixate on, what we serve, what we honor. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. The Greek here, full of light, is phopenon, to be illumined. If you have an understanding of what this text is saying, you will be illumined, made full of light. God's Holy Spirit will make the truth apparent to you that there is no place for divided loyalty. God demands his creation honor him alone. And God's word, rightly applied, enables us to see this truth clearly. Verse 23, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? If the truth and its application is obscured from you, you have a big problem. You are not destined for heaven. I'll say it that way. If your whole eye, your whole perception is bad and you don't have the Holy Spirit applying the truth to your life so that you can act on it, you are in darkness. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Greek is mamona. That includes the idea of not just currency, not just gold or silver or dollars or denarii. No, it includes all property. Anything tangible or intangible, if you're looking at your 401k balance, It's all considered mamona, or wealth, here translated in the LSB. You cannot serve God and your wealth. It's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to have property. It is wrong to have a divided loyalty. You can't serve God and your treasure. You can understand what your treasure is by what you are devoted to, what you serve, what you love. And you can understand, on the contrast, what you don't love by what you despise, what you are not serving. The main point of today's message is you cannot serve God and wealth. It's a binary choice. It's one or the other. Now we're going to be looking at the second half of 2 Kings chapter 5. We left off the text a couple of weeks ago. When we looked at Naaman and his great healing that took place, if you remember Naaman, he had leprosy and he was healed. We're going to look at Naaman's faith and we're going to look at a contrasting example of a man who made treasure, made wealth, made Mamona his God. And the end result for him was a death sentence. The main point in this message is you cannot serve 
God and wealth. It's one or the other. Before we jump into the text, let's go to prayer. Lord God, you are deserving of our undivided loyalty and allegiance. You are deserving of our honor and glory and focus. What God is like you that loves us to such a great degree and makes us right in your eyes. Oh Lord, we thank you for what you have accomplished through Christ. I pray, Lord, that we would fix our eyes firmly on you and that this world would not have a claim on us, that we would use what you have entrusted to us to steward for your kingdom and the furtherance of it. Lord, I pray that you would own our hearts through and through and that nothing would be held back from you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Well, the context, uh, I kind of alluded to just a few moments ago, the context of 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 15 through 27, uh, is based on Naaman and his healing. I already mentioned that, but for those of you who weren't here, Naaman was a great general in the Syrian army. He was highly honored and respected, but he was sick. He had leprosy. And he had heard a servant girl had told his wife that there was a prophet in Israel that could heal disease. And so Naaman went and talked to the king of Aram and got permission to go to Israel. Go to the king of Israel and ask for a cure. The king of Israel thought that this was an attempt to provoke a fight. He didn't know what to do. He can't heal. He knows enough to know that he is not God and he can't heal. But Elisha, the man of God, the prophet, heard that the king was troubled by this and he sent a message to the king saying, send him to me so that he'll know that there's a prophet in Israel. And Naaman came. He came with a huge camp and incredible wealth. We looked at it. It was approximately uh, 150 years wages in, in silver. $4 million in gold and multiple changes of clothes. He came with tremendous wealth and a whole entourage. And he came outside the house of Elisha and Elisha didn't even come out to see him. He sent a messenger out to him and said, uh, go dip in the river seven times and you'll be healed. And Naaman exploded. His pride got in the way, if you remember. He said, no, where's the pomp? Where's the circumstance? Where's my honor that's due to me? Surely he's going to come out and do his hocus pocus and heal me. Yahweh is not a pagan God. He set the standard, go and dip in the river seven times and you'll be healed. That's not what Naaman wanted. He explodes. But then his servants... They approach Naaman and they said, come on, we brought all this wealth, we spent all this time, we traveled all the way from Syria to get here. You're not going to dip in the river? If he had asked you to do an amazingly great thing, wouldn't you have done it? Naaman understands and he begins to believe. He believes to the point of action and he dips himself in the river. And the last phrase of the text says, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a young boy, and he was clean. He was healed. That's the context. 
Now we're going to be in in verses 15 through 27. Naaman has been healed. He is an illustration of faith. And his faith is going to make him a servant of Yahweh. Now this is a theme that I want you to to hear clearly. And I, I wanted to make it clear with the introduction. The theme of who is a servant and who is master is very important. The title of today's message is Two Masters. You can't serve God and wealth. That's the main point. We're going to see that theme pop out of the page over and over and over again. Naaman here is now a servant of Yahweh. I've broken this text into three different chunks. The first outline point is titled Faith, Then Peace. Naaman has faith. He's going to be sent away in peace. So we're going to join the text in verse 15. Then he, Naaman, the Syrian general, returned to the man of God with all his camp and came and stood before him and said, Behold, now I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So now, please take a blessing from your servant. This is Naaman's declaration of faith. Yahweh is Lord alone. He knows that there is no God like him. Oh, yes, the passage is 2 Kings chapter 5. We're in verses 15 through 27 today. Verse 16 says, but he, this is Elisha, the prophet, but he said, as Yahweh lives... Before whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Naaman is clearly overjoyed. He has been healed from this chronic illness. And he wants to take this massive wealth and give it to the man of God. But Elisha refuses. Why does he refuse? This is our first principle. All glory belongs to God alone. Elisha did not cure Naaman. He was used of God in his healing, but he was not the means, or he was not how he was healed. Only God can heal. So although Naaman is going to urge him to take it, he's going to refuse. He knows it's not his place. He hasn't earned it. It's not his. So he refuses it because all glory belongs to God alone. Verse 17. So Naaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth for your servant will no longer offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods, but to Yahweh. He's serious about this. He is so serious. He wants to bring back holy land dirt back to Aram so that he can have sacrifices to Yahweh alone in Aram. He's serious. He has true faith in the Lord. He doesn't understand what we can look at in John chapter 4, that the Lord doesn't need to be worshipped on a particular type of dirt. But nonetheless, he wants to honor the one who has healed him. He has faith. He goes on in verse 18 
to ask for forgiveness in advance because he knows as a general, as a head of state, he is going to be required as part of his civic duties to go and take part in religious ceremonies. And he already knows that this isn't going to please the only true God. Verse 18 says, In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. This is a pagan deity in Aram. When I bow myself in the house of, of Ramon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. So he asks in advance for forgiveness. Verse 19. And he said to him, go in peace. So Elisha doesn't necessarily endorse that behavior. There's no approval of idolatry by, by Elisha, but he recognizes that Naaman now has peace with God. So he went from him some distance. Naaman has faith, and he is sent away in peace. Naaman's change, his faith, worked out in obedience, has manifested a trait, a trait that I alluded to in, in our a time of communion, and that is gratitude. When we understand what we have been forgiven of, what we have been saved from, what we have been healed from, it expresses itself in natural gratitude. Naaman's gratitude, it makes him desire to bless others and not to hoard wealth. Naaman's gratitude leads him to worship, to desire to worship. Naaman's gratitude guides him to consider others. It makes him humble. When it's all said and done, when faith was exercised, his pride died. And gratitude and worship resulted. That's, a, that's an important thing to understand. When we exercise our faith, when we step out in faith, when we see God work in our life, there is an obvious result, and that's gratitude which has other manifestations, a desire to bless, a desire to worship, a desire to be humble. That was our first point in our outline. The second point is verses two, or 20 through 25, which I've titled Lust, Then Sin. Before we do that, turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, you could read James through and through every day of your life and be taught from this text. It's profound, it's applicable, and every day you could, you could ruminate on this text and benefit from it. But we're joining James chapter 1 at verse 14. We're going to be considering Gehazi. He's our negative example of one who pursues wealth and does not serve Yahweh. Verse 14 says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. We're going to see that in Gehazi's life. We're going to see that covetousness develop into lust, and lust into sin, and then sin bringing about death. That's how it works 
for, for humans. They start to consider and ruminate on and ponder on and lust after. And before you know it, they're dragged away after sin and then to death. So verses 20 through 25, I've titled Lust, Then Sin. Then Gehazi, verse 20, the young man of Elisha, so not an old man, a young man. The young man of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, Behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As Yahweh lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Gehazi has big plans. I won't give away the details, but verse 26 talks about what he had planned to do with this wealth. He thought, thinks of it as a missed opportunity. He brought all this wealth. What, we're going to watch it leave? Now, maybe he thought he would be like the ancient Israelites and plundering the Egyptians. And so he chases after Naaman. Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Gehazi's heart is set on Naaman's treasure. Verse 21, so Gehazi, the, uh, so Gehazi pursued Naaman, and Naaman saw one running after him. So he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all at peace? This is a, a war fighter. He's wondering if there's a problem. And so his concern is for others and if there is peace. Now in verses 22 through 25, we're going to see five different lies. You, you might count more. I counted five, and we're going to go through these. And maybe before I, I, I read that text, I would just mention sin rarely is a solo event. There are no solo sins. That's a, a principle I want to mention. There are no solo sins. What do I mean when I say that? Gehazi covets, but that's not his only sin. We're going to see that he lies to justify what he's going to do. He's going to steal from the Lord. He's going to deceive Naaman and attempt to deceive Elisha. Not only that, he proves that his love is not for God. So he's an idolater, and he has defied the first commandment. Over and over and over, Gehazi sins. It's not just one thing, taking something from Naaman. And, and that's why I want to say there are no solo sins. As we sin, it's rarely an isolated event. We're bringing more garbage with it. And the more we hide, the more we lie, the more we deceive, we compound the sin. Lies here, they're going to accompany nearly every other sin that is mentioned. So verse 22, and he, this is Gehazi, the young man of of God, said, all is at peace, lie number one. My master has sent me, lie number two, saying, behold, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, lie three. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. There's four lies right here. He's just piling it on. He wants a talent of silver, that's about 15 years' wages, and two changes of clothes. Where's his heart? 
It's on this wealth. It's on this treasure. That's what he wants. He's pursuing it. It's his God. Then Naaman, verse 23, said, Be pleased to take two talents. This is, in total, approximately $800,000 in today's wages. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his young men, and they carried them before him. Gehazi's a young man. He's probably thinking about retirement. And he's getting his reward now. Well, the, the getting is good. He's going to take everything that he can. And he takes double what he already wanted to take, which did not belong to him. Here is a, a thought that uh, I might offer from John Owen, which I think is, is very profound. Sin aims always at the utmost. And what that means is every, every small sin is one step toward getting toward a bigger sin. Every casual glance would be adultery if it could. Every angry snap could be murder if it developed to its full scale. The human heart is atrocious and wicked. And when sin gets free reign, bad things happen. Sin aims always at the utmost. Gehazi here, he's a target. He has allowed lust to drag him into sin, and now he's in twice as deep as he was before. Verse 24, So he came to the hill, and he took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. Then he sent the men away, and they departed. But he came in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. Five lies. I don't know if I'm reading into this text something that isn't there, but this morning during the Sunday school hour, we looked at, at Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, where the Lord confronts Adam and Eve. Where are you? They'd eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God pursued them. Where are you? Where have you been, Gehazi? Where have you been? And he says, your servant went nowhere. He is not his servant. He is a servant of the treasure that he stole That is his God. That's where his heart is. And he lies. This sin that he has committed results in death. uh, Verses 26 through 27 is our last point in the outline, which I've titled Sin, Then Death. Gehazi's going to get a death sentence. Then he said to him, Elisha said to Gehazi, Did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Is this the time? That's a good question to ask ourselves. Is now the time to focus on earthly wealth? 
and the pursuit of everything that is going to go up in smoke, is now that time? No. Now is the time to serve the true king. I, I don't think I'm necessarily reading into the text the heartbreak that Elisha seems to manifest because it, it's repeated in Scripture over and over. You can look at 2 Timothy 4.10 when Paul writes, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. He had been a part of the ministry. He had served the Lord and then he had deserted his heart and his treasure were not with the Lord. Where is your heart? Is it with Yahweh? Do you serve him? Are you devoted to him? Elisha concludes the chapter with this statement. Thus the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your seed forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Here's a a final principle. Sin is not isolated in its impact. Sin impacts others. Gehazi probably thought, oh, well, I'm going to benefit my family for generations. No, no. He made them impure, unclean, defiled, unable to serve perpetually. Sin is not isolated. We think of our sins, oh, that's just something that's between me and God. It is. But it will impact others. Cut the head off the snake early. When you catch yourself in sin, repent. Minimize the damage. Because it will impact others. Confront your sin. Deal with it. The main point I've been trying to communicate through this message is that we can't serve God and wealth. Naaman, the Syrian general, he decided to to serve God. Gehazi, our negative example, served wealth, and it did not result in health and wealth and prosperity for him. His focus was wrong. And he had a death sentence applied to him. Turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 18 as we close out this message. I want us to leave not with a negative example. I want us to leave, us here who are believers, I want us to leave with an understanding of the great gain that is ours because we are serving the Lord. Luke 18, verse 18. A ruler is going to ask Jesus an important question. Verse 18. And a ruler questioned him, him being Christ, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, 
All these things I have kept from my youth. This is where the rubber meets the road in the text. Verse 22. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You cannot serve God in wealth. You have wealth. It's time to come and serve me. What's the response? Verse 23, but when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, a massive animal to go through a tiny hole, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because at this time, physical blessing, earthly blessing is seen as a a sign of divine favor. Well, not necessarily. You can look at anybody who wins the lottery and see how their life becomes a train wreck. Wealth is, is not something necessarily to aspire to. And you can see that in the response here. Verse 26, And those who heard it, the statement of Christ said, Then who can be saved? The wealthy who are blessed of the Lord are, can't even get into the kingdom of God. Who, who can be saved? And I want us to take some assurance from verse 27. But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. This is where I give you the gospel. People cannot do anything that pleases God enough themselves. They're sinners. He, Jesus knew when he talked to this rich young ruler that he had broken the law. And so have we. We've all broken God's perfect law. We need God to do the impossible. We need him to take on human flesh. What kind of God does that? become human, live perfectly under every standard that God set forth, and then die. What kind of God does that? A perfect, selfless, loving, good God. That's who does the impossible. The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. We cannot buy our salvation. We can't do enough good works. That would be an atrocious insult to the Lord to think that he would sacrifice his son and then settle for our own filthy rags as a better alternative. No. This is what I want to leave us with, though. Verse 28. And Peter said, Behold, we have left all that is our own and followed you. We've done it. We've followed you. You're our God. We've followed you. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time and in the age to come eternal life. To the degree that you put 
the resources that God has entrusted to you at his disposal for the furtherance of his kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom of God, is to the degree you'll be rewarded not only in the life to come, but also in this life. That's astonishingly generous. Seeing as how we are criminals that hated God. He has done the impossible. He has made us right with Him. Those that know the Lord have been indwelt by His Spirit and understood the gravity of their sin and the salvation offered. Their God is God. And that's where their heart will be. Don't set your heart on the things that are going to burn. This is all going to go up in smoke. Use your treasure for the furtherance of the kingdom. And God's Holy Spirit will guide you to what that looks like. Let's stand and I'll close in prayer. Lord God, you are the only one deserving of our worship. You are perfect. You are pure. You are just. Help us to understand the immensity of your holiness and how great you are. Focus our eyes on you. And may we spend our life in worship of you day in and day out. Lord, I pray that you would make us wise and discerning into how to use our resources for your honor. May your kingdom grow, not only in Vernonia, but across this globe. It's in Christ's name I pray.